0: This episode contains content that may be disturbing to some listeners. Please check the show notes for more information. Badlands is a production of Double Elvis. Jay Wilkes Booth, he moves down the aisle he had measured once before. He passes Lincoln's bodyguard, a-nodding at the door. He holds a dagger in his right hand, a pistol in his left. He shoots poor Lincoln in the temple and sends his soul to ass. The stories about Jodie Foster are insane. She was nominated for an Academy Award for playing a child prostitute when she was only 12. She gave up acting to go to college, where that Oscar-worthy performance made her the target of a deranged stalker. She was both the inspiration for and the motive behind the attempted assassination of a sitting American president. And Jodie Foster made great films. Unlike that clip I played you at the top of the show, that wasn't from a great film. That was a fair use sample from the Library of Congress of Bascon Lamar Lumsford performing Booth Killed Lincoln in 1952. I played you that clip because I can't afford the rights to a clip from Tom Cruise's Top Gun Maverick. And why would I play you that particular slice of second-generation wingman awesomeness, could I afford it? Because that was the number one movie in America on June 15th, 2022. And that was the day that attempted presidential assassin John Hinckley Jr. was released from custody on his own recognizance. On this episode, Teenage Stardom. A deranged stalker, an attempted assassination, hereditary wingman awesomeness, and Jodie Foster. I'm Jake Brennan, and this is Badlands, Season 8 Hollywood Land. Credits rolled as the lights came up. Half the audience inside the Egyptian theater applauded, and the other half walked out disgusted. John Hinckley Jr. sat glued to his seat, blinking like an owl in daylight. He couldn't believe what he just saw. That was him up there on the screen. Martin Scorsese's taxi driver was his story. Hinckley went home and started keeping a diary, just like Travis Bickle in the movie. The next night, he went back to the Egyptian and saw it again. And the day after that, John Hinckley bought himself a gun. He needed four, just like the guy in the movie. Over the next few weeks, he saw the movie 15 times. The kid at the box office gave him lip about it, but Hinckley didn't give a shit. He was overcome by this portrayal of an obsessive loner plagued by insomnia, with the potential to cause absolute carnage. God's lonely man. And then... There was the one person in the world that he could talk to. An underage prostitute, played by a 12-year-old Jodie Foster. Hinckley was a college drop-up. He was trying and failing to make it as a songwriter. And by day, he schlepped demos to studios and record companies. And by night, he went back to the Egyptian and shelled out the money to see Taxi Driver again and again. He looked up at the screen and watched Robert De Niro as Travis Bickle. Only now, it no longer looked like Robert De Niro. It looked like himself, John Hinckley. Hinckley was Travis Bickle. Bickle had an easy rapport with the character Jodie Foster played. Hinckley knew that he and Jodie Foster would have that same rapport if they could only meet. He dreamed about running into her on the streets of LA. She'd see him for who he really was, and then everything, everything in this fucked up, useless life would become perfect. But L.A. was too big for a coincidence like that to fall in his lap. John Hinckley never had a chance to meet Jodie Foster. That is until a few years later, in May, 1980, when Jodie Foster announced she was stepping away from acting to pursue a degree at Yale. Compared to Los Angeles, New Haven and the Yale campus were tiny. She'd be much easier to find. Hinkley lied and told his parents he'd been accepted into a writing workshop at Yale. He sold off stock in his father's oil company. And when Jodie Foster's freshman year began, he rented a small apartment off campus. He wrote about her endlessly in his diary. And then he saw her, like she'd stepped off the big screen and into his life, walking with friends between classes. She was 18 now, but to Hinkley, she'd always be the girl she was in the movie. Innocent but streetwise. Someone he could protect, someone he could love. Problem was, he just couldn't bring himself to talk to her. The moment was never right. He followed her to class, to the coffee shop and back to her dorm. He left poems in her mailbox. He found her phone number and he set up a tape recorder so he could preserve the call forever. He imagined he and Jody would play it back when they were older and think about the earliest days of their love for one another and they'd even play the tapes for their kids. But when Hinkley caught being the one who left notes in her mailbox, the phone call took a turn for the worse. Am I supposed to know you? She asked him. Hinkley stammered, and Jodie Foster quickly hung up. It took him days to work up the nerve to call back. She told him to stop calling. Stop leaving shit in her mailbox too, and on her doorstep. I'm not dangerous, he said. She never said he was, but if she wasn't thinking it before, she was now. In the background, Hinckley heard Foster's roommates laughing. He asked what was so funny. They're laughing at you, John. This time, Hinckley hung up. This approach wasn't working. In his diary, he listed other ways to win her heart. He could hijack a plane. He could kill himself in front of her door. And then he asked himself, what would Travis Bickle do? Well, Travis Bickle might try to kill President Jimmy Carter. On October 2nd, 1980, Hinckley flew to a Carter campaign rally in Dayton. He had three revolvers in his luggage. He stashed them at a nearby bus station. He just wanted to get a feel for it—how close he could get, and if he would be searched. He was able to get close, real close, an arm's length away from the president. No one searched anything. He could have done it right then and there if he had the guns on him. And then Jody Foster wouldn't know. He followed the Carter campaign to Nashville, ready to follow through this time. But he got spooked. Something about it didn't feel right. In the airport, headed back to New Haven, his suitcase got searched. And the cops found the three guns, plus a box of ammunition and a pair of handcuffs. They didn't find his diary. The diary that laid out his plan to assassinate President Jimmy Carter to impress Jody Foster. The cops took the guns and let him off with a fine. And when he got home, he burned the journal in his sink. And as soon as he could, he bought more guns. John Hinckley spent the next few months flying back and forth between his parents' home in Colorado and New Haven, Connecticut. He would stalk Foster for a few weeks, then get depressed and fly home. He sent a letter to the FBI, warning them Jodie Foster was going to be kidnapped from her dorm for romantic reasons. And then he swallowed a bottle full of antidepressants and wound up in the hospital. When the psychiatrist asked if Hinckley had anything to live for, he said two things, writing and Jodie Foster. When he got out of the hospital, he flew back to New Haven. He left a note on Jody Foster's door again. Just wait, it read. I'll rescue you very soon. In November, Ronald Reagan defeated Jimmy Carter in the presidential election. Hinckley shifted his sights. He went to D.C. to stalk the president-elect. Reagan was living temporarily in Blair House, on the other side of Pennsylvania Avenue, under Secret Service protection. Hinckley loitered out front. That's where he was on December 8th, 1980, when news broke that another obsessed gunman named Mark David Chapman shot John Lennon dead in New York City. Hinckley had once felt a connection with John, but as he abandoned his stake out of Reagan and hopped the bus from DC to New York to attend a vigil, he now felt a kinship with someone else, with Lennon's assassin, Mark David Chapman. John Hinckley imagined himself hijacking a plane Landing it on Yale's campus to pick up Jody Foster, and then forcing President Ronald Reagan to resign so he and Foster could live in the White House. He bought a postcard of the first family. On the back, he wrote, Dear Jody, don't they make a darling couple? Nancy is downright sexy. One day, you and I will occupy the White House, and the peasants will drool with envy. But he didn't send it. He slipped it into one of his books. He always carried books with him when he traveled, like a small red covered copy of The Catcher in the Rye the same book Mark David Chapman had been carrying when he shot John Lennon. Hinckley's parents got tired of him flying back and forth on their dime. And they got tired of his zombie ass appearing at their home looking for a place to recover. So they cut him off and kicked him out. All his failures rolled into one giant fuck up until the only thing that made sense was to go to New Haven one last time and shoot himself in the goddamn head. So he bought a bus ticket to DC rode for three days with his books, two revolvers, and six Devastator bullets, so-called because they have a devastating explosive lead compound inside the tip. Hinckley had those Devastators so that he could go out with a big bang when he offed himself in front of Jodie Foster. He checked into a shitty hotel for the night, paid cash, and the next morning, he woke up and got ready to hop the next bus to New Haven. First, he picked up a copy of that morning's Washington Star newspaper. Inside was the president's itinerary for the day. The presidential motorcade was gonna shut down a lot of streets. Ronald Reagan had only one public event planned: a speech to union members at the Hilton. And that place was near Hankley's hotel, practically down the block. Fuck it then. New Haven could wait. John Hankley was gonna assassinate the president. Paul Schrader couldn't sleep. Whenever he shut his eyes, he saw a blinking neon sign that said, failure. His marriage was falling apart, and the affair that was causing his marriage to fall apart was falling apart. He got into an argument with his mentor, the legendary film critic Pauline Kael, as well as with the American Film Institute, where he happened to be working. He had no money and no apartment. He was living out of his car. At night, he drove around LA headlights of other cars slicing into his eyes. Then, when he could no longer drive straight, he parked in front of the Pussycat Theater, a porno movie house on Santa Monica Boulevard that stayed open all night. He paid for a ticket and crashed out in the seats while the other patrons jerked off to a so-called European art house movie. He woke up in the hospital with a bleeding ulcer, laid up in recovery, sober for the first time in weeks. He imagined a character a lot like himself, A loner, isolated in the middle of a crowded city, driving the streets all night, sleeping in porno theaters. Alienated, cut off from real human contact, the man turned to deadly violence. Paul Schrader knew he had two choices, write about that guy or end up becoming that guy. When he got out of the hospital, Schrader laid a loaded gun on his desk next to his typewriter. Over the next two weeks, he hammered out multiple drafts of the screenplay that would become Taxi Driver. The early drafts were dark, but meandering. Like Schrader had been, they wandered aimlessly, lacking purpose. Then Schrader found the story that catalyzed his idea in a book called An Assassin's Diary. The original manuscript of that diary was found during a police search of a 1967 AMC Rambler. Its first entry on March 1st, 1972 read, It is my personal plan to assassinate, by pistol, either Richard Nixon or George Wallace. The diary's author was an unemployed, mentally unbalanced loner named Arthur Bremer. Over the next 150 pages, Bremer recounted, in detail, a sexual encounter with a masseuse, an exchange with a customs agent at the Canadian border, and repeated attempts to assassinate President Nixon. But Bremer couldn't get close enough to Nixon to do the job. He didn't have any real politics to speak of, except for hating the hell out of all politicians and, you know, who can really blame him, but he turned his attention to George Wallace, less exciting target, but easier to get a shot at. He checked out books about RFK's assassination from the local library. He volunteered on the Wallace campaign and attended several rallies with the candidate. At a rally in a mall in Maryland, Bremer stood out like a sore thumb, dressed in red, white, and blue, with a massive campaign button that read Wallace in 72, He stood out because the rest of the crowd was there to heckle George Wallace. As governor of Alabama, Wallace campaigned on a policy of segregation now, segregation tomorrow, segregation forever. That is an actual quote. Maryland Democrats weren't hearing that. A tomato came flying at Wallace out of the crowd. It splattered on the stage a few feet away in a wet red splotch. And then came another, even farther off the mark. It was enough to convince Wallace to skip the handshakes at the rope line afterward. He got into a waiting limo and his entourage sped him to another mall. In his 1967 AMC Rambler, Arthur Bremer followed. And the reception at the second rally was warmer, but Secret Service advised Wallace to skip the rope line. Wallace insisted, he was a man of the people. He didn't become president without pressing the flesh. So Wallace shook hands with dozens of supporters as Arthur Bremer pushed his way through the crowd. Bremer planned to say a penny for your thoughts as he shot the candidate. Sort of his own take on John Wilkes Booth's six-sempered tyrannous line. But at the last minute, he froze up. Over here, Mr. Wallace. Not a line that will live in history. Arthur Bremer fired five shots, four connected. One of those four bullets lodged itself in George Wallace's spinal cord, paralyzing him for life. Bremer was wrestled to the ground and arrested. A search of his rambler turned up a nine millimeter, a pair of binoculars, and the books about RFK in the diary. Paul Schrader grafted Arthur Bremer's story onto the character he was working on, a veteran named Travis Bickle, who takes a job as a New York City cabbie as a salve for his insomnia. He even had Bickle keep a diary with rambling observations that mirrored those of Wallace's would-be assassin. The resulting screenplay ended up in the hands of Martin Scorsese, Hawed off of a cult hit with Mean Streets, featuring a young Robert De Niro. Scorsese wanted Dustin Hoffman to play Travis Bickle, but Hoffman read the screenplay and thought Marty was fucking nuts, so De Niro took the role. Sybil Shepard was cast as the object of Bickle's fucked up affection, and that left only one major part to be cast. Iris, the streetwise but sweet child sex worker that Bickle is determined to save in the film. 200 girls tried out for that part, Carrie Fisher, Michelle Pfeiffer, Bo Derrick, and 12-year-old Jodie Foster. The role was a major turning point for the young actress. This wasn't another Coppertone commercial, or another call for another tomboy in a live-action Disney movie. For the first time in her career, Jodie Foster had the chance to play a character who wasn't almost identical to her actual personality. The Los Angeles Board of Child Welfare insisted that if an actress that young was going to take on such a sexually explicit role, she needed to go through counseling beforehand. The production was already running up against tight deadlines, and the producers hired Pat Brown, former governor of California, to smooth things over and speed them along. Part of the arrangement was that for any shots deemed too explicit, Jodie Foster's older sister, who was 18, would body double for her. Robert De Niro got to New York ahead of time and took a job driving a cab at night. The production crew built Bickle and Iris' apartments and condemned buildings parts of town so dangerous that they hired a local gang to protect the set from other gangs. And when Foster got to New York, she and De Niro went out to diners to go over the script. De Niro was already locked into his character, awkward, barely verbal. Jodie Foster was just a kid. She was used to playing herself on screen and these weird half dates with Travis Bickle border. Then she started to get it. The two began to improvise, riffing off of each other building the relationship that would play out on screen. Taxi Driver made its debut in New York and was invited to Cannes. Reactions to the movie were decidedly mixed. It barely avoided an X rating. Scorsese had to blur out the porn on screen in the theater scenes and desaturate the red of the blood in the final sequence. And the violence was too shocking for some audience members, including the playwright Tennessee Williams, who was head of the festival jury. He said, Taxi Driver would win over his dead body. Convinced he'd be going home empty-handed, Scorsese left Cannes before the prizes were announced. He was back in Los Angeles when his publicist called him at five in the morning. Taxi Driver won the Palme d'Or, the highest jury prize at Cannes, beating out films by Bertolucci, Polanski, and Bergman. Back in the States, Taxi Driver went into wider release. It opened at the Egyptian in Los Angeles, where a struggling songwriter bought a ticket and saw himself in Robert De Niro's character. But it wasn't the stunning Hollywood bombshell he fell in love with. Instead, it was the 12-year-old girl. We'll be right back after this word, word, word. John Hinckley laid on the bed in room 312 of the Park Central Hotel, staring at the ceiling. In the morning edition of the Washington Star, the one that included President Reagan's itinerary for the day was on the bed next to him. The idea had been growing in Hinckley's brain for some time, true force. The White House was impenetrable. He understood that now. After all the hours spent waiting outside, hoping to catch a glimpse of his target. That's how things were in New Haven, too. He'd walked up to Jody Foster's door so many times, but he couldn't knock, couldn't go inside. When he wanted to see her, it had to be out in the world, on her way to class, out with friends. Always that distance between them. She was up on the screen and he was in the audience. If she could just see him, then there couldn't be any distance for this. For all his practice, Hinckley was a poor shot. If he was gonna hit Reagan, he had to be close, right next to him, in the frame on the screen. John Hinckley, coming to you live from Washington, DC. He smiled at the thought, Jody seeing him on the news, Jody knowing it was all for her. This was the moment, the day, everything was becoming a reality. The days went on and on, They, they didn't end. All his life needed was a sense of someplace to go. He would become a person like other people. A shadow of doubt hit him. What if she didn't know? What if he went through all this and she still didn't understand him? And there were so many people around her between her and him. And there were the ones who laughed. And they were the ones who told her not to talk to strangers. And what if they got in her head and told her that it wasn't all for her? He had to tell her. He had to be sure. Hinkley rolled off the floral printed sheets and walked barefoot across the brown industrial carpet. He sat at the little desk and he looked for a minute at the suitcase lying open on the floor. He'd been traveling so long. loneliness had followed him his whole life, everywhere, in bars, in cars, sidewalks, stores, everywhere. And there was no escape. He was God's lonely man. The gun glowed under the hotel room's fluorescent lights and he picked up his pen. Dear Jody, I feel very good about the fact that you at least know my name and know how I feel about you. I've got to do something now to make you understand in no uncertain terms that I'm doing all of this for your sake. Jody, I'm asking you to please look into your heart and at least give the chance with this historical deed to gain your love and respect. I love you forever, John Hinckley. He folded the letter and slipped it into his suitcase, and he picked up the 22 and loaded it with the hollow points. Now, he saw this clearly. His whole life was pointed in one direction, and there never had been a choice for him. He hailed a cab out front of his hotel. He sat in the back seat and felt a weird sense of vertigo. The cabbie turned around, and for a moment, Hinkley saw Travis Bickle looking back at him, head shaved to a mohawk. Hollow stare. The cabbie asked where he was headed, and the illusion shattered. The Hilton, on Connecticut. In his pocket, Hinckley's hand gripped the 22. The White House faded in the rearview as they turned onto 17th Street. They rolled past brownstones and embassies, through DuPont Circle, where hippie drug dealers sold ditchweed to so called artists and so called musicians. The city was like an open sewer. Full of filth and scum. Sometimes he could hardly take it. The president should clean up this whole mess. He should flush it down the fucking toilet. There was a small crowd already gathered outside the Hilton. Reagan was popular. He was turning the country around. Morning in America. Hinckley blended into the crowd. That's where Arthur Bremer and Travis Bickle made their mistakes. With their red, white, and blue outfits and their mohawks. They stood out. Not Hinckley. In his beige coat with his slumped shoulders and sleepy expression no one looked at john hankley twice god's lonely man the hotel was massive and sprawling in its heyday hendrix and the doors played the ballroom but Jimi hendrix was dead and jim morrison was dead and john lennon was dead and john hankley wondered what his idols would say when he met them would they be impressed with what he'd done would she the president and his entourage came out of the building, greeted by cheers. Hinckley stood as near as he could to the presidential limo, behind the rope barrier. He had to wait, had to get closer. He had to be in the frame. The president shook hands and posed for pictures. He was only a few yards away, but it was taking forever. John Hinckley took the twenty-two out of his coat pocket. As the president made his way to the limo, Hinckley raised the gun. He wished he'd thought of something to say, he fired. The first shot hit press secretary James Brady in the head. Brady dropped to the sidewalk. A DC cop pivoted to shield the president. Hinckley fired again, hitting the cop in the back of the neck. The gun was a live thing in his hand, struggling against him. The next shot went into the air, over the president's head. Hinkley took a breath, regained control, and he shot a secret service agent in the gut. He fired again and again. The shot was wild shattering the window of the limousine. He was fucking it all up. Why would anyone fall in love with a guy who was fucking it all up? A guy who shot at the president, who didn't shoot the president. Hinckley had one shot left. He steadied his arm. He pulled the trigger and he shot Ronald Reagan in the chest. The bullet grazed Reagan's rib and lodged into his lung inches from his heart. Rawhide down, a secret service agent was shouting. And using Reagan's code name, Agents punched Hinkley in the gut and shoved him against the wall. The spent gun fell from his hand. He'd done it. And Jodie Foster would know it was all for her. The Oscars were supposed to be held that night, but they were pushed to the following night because of the assassination attempt. At the next night's ceremony, Martin Scorsese applauded as Robert Redford beat him out for Best Director. Someone pulled Scorsese aside, asked him if he'd heard the news. The guy who shot Reagan the night before, he was obsessed with Jodie Foster. The guy said taxi driver was his inspiration. In New Haven, Jodie Foster got home late from her first stage performance. Before she could get the key in the lock, her roommate opened the door and her face was pale. John, she said. John who? Foster asked. John Hinckley. Did he write me again? Jodie wanted to know. It had been a few weeks. Foster hoped maybe her stalker had moved on. He's the one, her roommate said. The phone was ringing inside the apartment. Foster went inside to answer it. Her dean was on the other end of the line. The FBI wanted to talk to her, they had a letter for her from John Hinckley. John Hinckley didn't realize he was being followed. It was a hot day in July, 2011, and Hinckley was at a mall in Williamsburg, Virginia, where his mother lived. He was now entitled to extended time out of the DC mental hospital where he'd been confined since he tried to kill Ronald Reagan. The doctors at St. Elizabeth said his depression and psychotic disorder were in remission, and his narcissistic personality disorder had receded. They said Hinckley was no longer a threat, but there were rules. He wasn't supposed to be anywhere near a president, like any president. He couldn't be in DC unless he was in the hospital. He couldn't visit his sister in Dallas, too close to George W. Bush. Hankley's mother moved to nearby Williamsburg so that he could spend time with her. On this day, she dropped him off at the movies. He was planning on seeing Captain America. It was all written down somewhere, all scheduled. But as soon as his mother drove off, Hinckley changed the plan. He wandered off into the mall with two Secret Service agents trailing him. They followed him into a Barnes and Noble and watched him browse through books about music. He drifted over to the American history section and seemed to fixate on one particular shelf. After Hinckley moved on, one of the agents went to see what book he'd been staring at. It was called Rawhide Down, the near assassination of Ronald Reagan. The next day, John Hinckley returned to St. Elizabeth's Hospital and raved about the movie he hadn't gone to see. And then he talked about his plans for the next time he was released. At his 1982 trial, John Hinckley pled not guilty by reason of insanity. The insanity defense had a long association with assassins. It was created in response to the case of a scottish woodworker who tried to kill the prime minister of england in 1843 because he thought the prime minister was conspiring against him it was used again when charlie yeto shot and killed president garfield in 1881 because god told him to supposedly he invoked the insanity defense as well unsuccessfully as it was in that case at Hinckley's trial the prosecution led with the facts they walked the jury through the day of the shooting they tried to get President Reagan to testify, but Ronnie wasn't having it. They had to settle for the cop and the Secret Service agent Hinkley shot, trying to get at Reagan. They showed the jury the shooting dummies Hinkley had used for target practice back in Colorado, and they made it clear this crime was planned, calculated. And then the defense team brought in Jody Foster. Foster testified in a closed session. The press wasn't allowed access to those recordings. But they did get the recordings of Hinckley's phone calls to her, along with his poems and the letter he wrote to her hours before the assassination. They painted a picture of a man obsessed, a man completely out of touch with reality. When they played the video of Foster saying she had no relationship with Hinckley, Hinckley jumped out of his seat and stormed out of the courtroom. Along with Hinckley's romantic obsession with Foster, they explained his identification with Travis Bickle. This wasn't a man who could tell when the movie ended and real life began. Over the objections of the prosecutors, the defense closed out their argument by making the jury watch Taxi Driver in its entirety. After hours of deliberation, the jury found John Hinckley not guilty by reason of insanity. And because he was deemed a threat to others, though, he was placed in the custody of St. Elizabeth's Hospital. In 1987, John Hinckley's family made the first formal request to review him for possible release for home visits. He met with psychiatrists and submitted to having his room at the hospital searched. They found more poems and letters to Jodie Foster, letters between Hinckley and serial killer Ted Bundy, and even evidence that he'd been trying to get in touch with Charles Manson. Hinckley's request for home visits was denied. But then in 2003, Hinckley was cleared for occasional supervised home visits with his mother. Despite some mildly shady behavior, he was eventually given a full release in 2022. Today, he lives in a one-bedroom apartment in Williamsburg. He's trying to get his music career going. Even before his release, he booked a gig at a bar in Brooklyn that ended up canceling due to safety concerns. Hinckley claimed they'd already sold 500 tickets, and the venue only holds 400 people. Other bookings fell through. Venues announced gigs with Hinckley and then canceled in the face of threats. For her part, Jodie Foster has rarely talked about the shootings. She's built a legendary career entirely on her own without ever falling under the shadow of John Hinckley Jr. But he's still out there, casting that shadow, walking the streets, staring at 30,000 YouTube subscribers with that hollow stare, trying to tell a story story that ought to be in pictures. I'm Jake Brennan, and this is Badlands. Badlands was created by me, Jake Brennan, and produced by Double Elvis. Credits for this episode can be found on the show notes page at badlandspod.com. Subscribe, follow, like, rate, and review the Badlands podcast wherever you get your podcast, because Badlands is available everywhere. If you love this show, tell someone, tell everyone, shout us out on social, spread the word, and follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Double Elvis.